Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that's been cruelly misrepresented by people reporting the things it's said. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey Corey. It's August, listener. It's the start of silly season and there has been, I think it's fair to say, a whole gang of silliness, mainly driven by Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. We've spent the week coming up with the 10 silliest policies that they've proposed and we're going to go through them in reverse order of nonsense. We are going to cheat slightly, Steve, because number 10 isn't necessarily a silly policy. It's an interesting policy. So it's an outlier on this one. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is it is an interesting policy, but it also has the potential to be incredibly silly. The, the idea is essentially just scrapping spin doctors uh, in, in number 10 and, and in government. The idea being it's all about transparency, you know, honesty, which on the face of it, seems like a very good idea. Um, You know, spin doctor has become a term which has a significant negative connotation to it, I think. Certainly, if you were able to actually set a government up that that functioned in a way where it was not actively spinning in a way that people have become used to, that would stand out, and I think it would stand out in a positive way. The problem you've got, though, is that we call it spin doctoring in, in in the world of politics, but all it actually is, for the most part, is just communications. It's just a communications policy, a communications director or, or, or whatever, whose job it is, is to make sure that the message of the government is getting out there. And the reality is, from a political perspective, uh, um, if you don't have that kind of strict message discipline then everything you're doing gets lost and you actually find yourselves struggling. And that's not just a just bad from the political perspective, but it can also be bad from the governance perspective. Because if you're not actually hitting home the key um, facets of what you're trying to do, it can affect how people engage with the policies. Massive example of this was with the pandemic. The the importance of communications and the communications role, and I, and in many ways spin doctoring was uh, shown through the through the pandemic with the whole you know the constant push for you know hands face space all of those the, 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 all of those sorts of things because sometimes your message is very important to delivering the outcome that you want to see from from a policy and that is something where you do need a quote-unquote spin doctor to make that happen because you need someone who's actually involved and engaged with all elements of the process um, to actually kind of look at that picture. Yes, the genesis of this is a tweet from Robert Peston, which was um, one of this trust's most radical promises is that she won't govern to appease the press and will downgrade the use of focus groups and her own press office, um, which... Uh, obviously fits in with Liz Truss's image to eschew showy photo shoots and concentrate instead on the boring substance of governing. Yeah, I mean, but also the, it, it definitely displays a 
I, I think an identification of a, of a genuine kind of like issue that is that, that affects politics, and I think we've discussed this definitely between ourselves, and I think we've talked about it on, on the podcast as well. Honest, upfront transparency, just being simple communication, i.e. think Mick Lynch for the uh, RMT, is a very effective means of comms now. You don't need to be suave and sophisticated, you just need to be who you are, and you just need to be transparent with that, and it can work quite well. If you take that and apply it to government, you can kind of see where Trusk ends up with the notion of, oh, we're not going to use focus groups, we're not going to use... Uh, you know, we're not going to be concerned with what the press is reporting, all of these different things. But you then end up in a bit of an issue in that it matters what focus groups think on issues, not just purely from a political perspective, but from a policy perspective as well. If you're putting in a policy which requires people to actually actively do something, it doesn't matter if it's a really good idea and it will function if people are going to do it. You need a focus group to work out how they can actually engage with it, what their you know reticence of engaging with it might be. So it, it it's a very good headline, ironically, but not a good kind of like structure behind it. In itself, it feels like a bit of spin. It's also it's also an odd thing to say from a campaign who so far has had an incredibly easy ride from the ta- ca- from, from the Catholic press. <laughs> There's part of the podcast like it's 1688. Um, an easy ride from the tabloid press, uh, given that the Daily Mail in particular did do a lot to try and nobble Penny Morden, who was Liz Truss's main rival to getting in the final two. Yeah, and what, what's interesting is if you, uh, to, to a degree, like, take this with a grain of salt, but... There is a certain you can normally tell uh, some some interesting information from reading the comments on Daily Mail articles in terms of like what the what a certain type of their reader thinks, and when they're putting out articles on the Mail site which are you know very pro trust, like the comments aren't pro trust. The comments are very much uh, anti anti her in a lot of ways. So it may very well be that. The national press, in this instance, uh, you know, the Daily Mail, the Telegraph, and whatnot, aren't necessarily reflecting what their readers would actually think in any way. They're trying to lead them down the path, but they may not want to follow. I should point out, obviously, we don't endorse reading the comments of any article online or otherwise. That way lies madness. Oh, I friends. have to do as part of my job. So <laughs> my point is proven, and. <laughs> Uh, I, mean, I, I think you're right. Essentially, part of a politician's job is to be a communicator and explain what you're doing. And I see this, if Liz Truss is Prime Minister and if the cost of living and energy crisis is as big as we assume it'll be in the autumn and winter, I see this lasting round about three weeks. I, I don't think it will come into fruition at all because somebody sensible will basically go, no, we need to have someone. We don't call them a spin doctor. We don't call them the director of communications or whatever. We give them a nice new um, shiny title, which will be doing the exact same job as that person would be. And then you can say, oh, we fulfilled our promise while still actually having a you know, a structure to actually get messaging sorted. Speaking of sensible people saying no to things... Should we go into number nine on our list, which is also Liz Truss, her plan for public sector regional pay boards, which was abandoned less, I think, than 18 hours after the press release went out. This was a 
Boris Johnson-esque U-turn, but I think in less time, I think quicker than any of the of Johnson's actual U-turns as well. So Trust puts out a, a press release of some sort, which basically mentions, oh, and we're going to look at regional pay to try and you know cut costs within the uh, the civil service because the civil service has become this massive kind of like bugbear for the for the for the Tories at the moment, where it's just like, oh, we need to cut down on the civil service. We need to cut down on the civil service in in some form. It's wasteful bureaucracy, Steve. Apparently, apparently they're all woke leftists as well. <laughs> I hope. Um, Some of them didn't go to Oxbridge. How dreadful. She puts forward this this notion of regional pay, which obviously goes down like a you know a cup of cup of cold sick, (laughs) where it's just like, what? So you're saying that a teacher up in the north should be paid less for doing the exact same job as a teacher down in the south? Well, we already have policies in place that deal with that to a degree in the form of London waiting. And that's that's fine. London is so expensive. You do need to to pay people more in London so that they can actually, you know, survive. Um, How's that going for people in London at the moment? Uh, not great. No, no, not great at all. You know, they might want to try and do something about that, but not not going to hold my breath. But Bring in some sort of energy price cap, maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Um, build more houses. Um, no, I, not I, with the state of the internet in West London. Did you see that story this week? No. They've not been able to build houses in the area of West London because they haven't got the digital infrastructure. Mental. And that's before we even get into the whole Greenfield, Brown site. Bring in, bring in. That's true, actually, because Rishi Sunak's plan to try and not build and save the Greenbelt isn't even in the top ten on this list. Yeah. Make of that what you will, listeners. Um, but yeah, so regional pay boards. Uh, Trust puts out this suggestion. Everybody basically just lambasts it. And like very quickly, a load of people who have like studied these sorts of ideas in the past kind of put, start putting out like some of the his- the history of this idea. So this is something that Margaret Thatcher um, looked at potentially doing during I think the early part of, of 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 her premiership as a means to try and you know get certain government costs under control or whatever. Um, but inevitably, inevitably, they decided this isn't worth it because. You, there's two ways you can basically get it done. You've either got to increase pay um, for the areas that you're saying, oh, you need that, that have a higher cost of living associated with them, so South East London, those sorts of things, or you need to cut wages for the rest of the rest of the country. And politically, cutting wages is just not gonna not gonna fly the minute you try and do that the entirety of the british government is going to go on strike uh, and chris cook does a good thread on this from tortoise and the idea i suppose is that if you are a teacher in doncaster and you're the same rage as someone in romford then maybe you teach in doncaster where wages generally be more depressed is possibly earning more in real terms and it's a bit of an anomaly that you might want to correct. It's a bit like the, the pasty tax and the omnish shambles budget, I suppose, all these loopholes that you try and close in the name of free market dogma end up becoming quite politically viable. Turns out this was also a taxpayers and alliance sort of press release that Trust had copied and pasted. And the problem is the way you attack, attract graduates to stay in Doncaster or Darlington or wherever it is and stay on the be teachers or civil servants is because of the Lovely. public. Yeah, yeah, because of the public sector pay waiting. You're going to further exacerbate the teacher recruitment crisis if you do this, so everyone will move down to where there's more money. It just sounds like a complete bureaucratic nightmare. The other thing is, 
the Taxpayers Alliance in the in their report on it says that one of the uh, one of the issues of the policy is that if you overpay teachers in Doncaster, uh, that essentially might have a crowding out effect for the rest of the private sector, which is ludicrous because the idea that somehow Doncaster suffering and is losing out of money because his teachers being paid too much is just patently absurd. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's the Taxpayers Alliance. I mean, they are not necessarily producers of high quality um, uh, policy ideas, if, 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 if I'm being entirely honest. And that's not a jab at them because they're right-wing. There are some right-wing think tanks, including things like the Centre for Studies and, and things like that, Centre for Social Studies and, and things, which are interesting and they put a lot of effort and, and thought into what they do but the taxpayers alliance isn't it's just got one bugbear of we need to cut the size of the state but the well, perhaps one of the i've not seen this the, the, this notion discussed too much around this the regional pay boards either is the fact that in a lot of the areas where you're talking about like you say doncaster or, or whatever like in fact, Birmingham is a, a very good example of this. If you were to bring in um, regional uh, regional pay um, pay boards for Birmingham and you know cut the wages that were going to civil servants, nurses, doctors, the police, that's taking billions out of Birmingham and the West Midlands economy, and that has a wider impact. So you basically are doing you're basically taking money out of the economy, which means it's not being spent on local services, local businesses and things like that, which cost people, cost businesses their ability to grow at the very least, likely causes some businesses to fold um, as a result of that. And so you end up, effectively, if you like, if you were to do it in one area, you might get away with it. But when you're doing it across most of the country, it's a recipe for a recession. Mm. And when you're already in, an, in, a, in, a, in a period where people's, uh, you know, budgets are seriously constrained by the cost of living crisis and are therefore not spending as much in a lot of different areas, which means you're already going to see a, a, a drop in demand. And then yeah. you're potentially suggesting we make that worse. We've talked already about teachers, nurses, and how their real terms payers decreased by about 10% over the past decade. Yeah. If only there were some other warning signs other than the fact it was based on a report from the Taxpayers Alliance, like the fact that the press release claim that we're going to try and save £11 billion a year when the total civil service annual pay is around £9 billion. And also that Jacob Rees-Mogg was the minister out on the morning defending it and quoting the press release. It tells you everything you need to know about how serious it is as an idea. But only be, so we had a bit of an argument about this. The reason this isn't number nine is because the trust campaign you turned and said, we're not going to do it now. You all misrepresented our press release. I mean, it wasn't misrepresented at all. They've basically just gone... They've gone for the full Johnson experience here, where they have put something out, you turned on it rather quickly, and are now accusing everybody else of being the problem, even though literally all what anyone did was accurately quote what they had said in their own press release. Nothing has changed, Steve. Nothing has changed. Speaking of nothing changing, number eight, we've got a flip-flop. Do they have a flip-flop? It's like a U-turn. We've got all of the political cliches. We need a slap down and then we can get our full bingo set, can't we? So this is Rishi Sunak being simultaneously for and against onshore wind farms. So on July the 19th, Rishi Sunak, uh, he gave an interview to The Telegraph in which he said that he was going to not build on onshore wind farms and instead was going to build more offshore wind farms. Now, obviously, more offshore wind tends to be more expensive than onshore wind farms, but onshore wind farms tend to be in fields, and people don't like that because they're massive nimbies and would rather have a nice view without wind turbines with, like, 
in a post-apocalyptic landscape. But that's not necessarily accurate, though, as an assessment. I think it's Robert Colville has been like tweeting about these sorts of things because he's been delving into a lot of polling onto a lot of the issues and the policies that have been um, that have been suggested by by the Tory leadership candidates and wind farms are not necessarily unpopular. They're not even necessarily unpopular in, in, in the state of, oh yeah, we're in favour of them, just not here. Like a lot of, I think it's a plurality overall of people are actually in favour of them and them being nearby them as well. It really is a very specific kind of view of the conservatives that they've got of the of the British people, that we must, that we must protect this green and pleasant land and that somehow putting a wind farm over there is somehow going to be a negative to it. Is that maybe the subset of members that Rishi Sunak is desperately trying to shore up with his amazing list of policies, of which four of which we're about to discuss? Yeah. Um, so then, in the hustings this week, on Wednesday, Rishi Sunak was asked if he'd be bold enough to scrap the ban on onshore wind, and he said he would scrap it. Surely it can't be that Rishi Sunak is just saying different things to different audiences in a desperate attempt to shore up any sort of support what we were saying about nothing changing from Johnson he's just not really very good at politics is he no Sunak has managed to get every single call wrong in this in this leadership election from the looks of it Uh, and he's just demonstrating that he doesn't actually have a belief in his in his body as far as I can tell but he just lacks any positive characteristics to get around that number eight number seven then (laughs) Um, I've just written down those bloody tax cuts. Yeah, I mean, I've lost track of how many billions worth of tax cuts have been promised as part of this um, this this leadership election so far. Now, some of them actually, as a whole, are not necessarily bad things to do. Um, you know, within the uh, within with the cost of living crisis happening, obviously, Labour was very critical about increasing national insurance during a cost of living crisis uh, and you know if, if you know rolling that back in some form would be very helpful for a lot of for a lot of people especially on the the lower end of the um, earning spectrum so not all tax cuts quote unquote are created equally when it comes to this but an awful lot of the things that are being suggested by the Tories are your stereotypical income tax cuts or you know we're gonna we're gonna cut uh, you know co- corporation tax down to this, this ridiculously low level even though we've already got one of the lowest levels of um, corporation tax going in a lot of ways and guess what it's not actually brought in a load of additional investment unless you're trying to do like offshore tax haven type uh, uh, politics which i'm sure that's probably where they are thinking uh, about going but then on top of all of that you've then got the notion of okay you're cutting taxes fine so you've either got to one make more cuts to the public sector after a decade of austerity. Everything has basically already been cut to the bone anyway, so you're going to struggle to find uh, any additional, um, you know, uh, major major cuts that can be made, um, which I think is one of the reasons why they're so focused on the civil service, because it's the one area they were never quite able to to get right, quote-unquote, under, uh, under Cameron and Osborne or whatever, because, like, Francis Maud had his big civil service kind of, like, reforms idea, but they never amounted to much. So I think they just see it as a, a, a vast uh, wealth of 
cuts that can be made because they haven't happened there yet, even though they didn't happen they because they were necessary. Have happened. As yeah. Well. yeah. But anyway, yeah. but yeah. So you've got that, or they need to completely go against their mantra of sound economic, sound quote unquote uh, economics, and borrow to make up the difference because you're cutting taxes, which means less money coming in, but you still need to fund those very same things. But it says here that Rishi Sunak's tax cuts where he's going to take the basic rate of tax from 20p to 16p over the next seven years. And that's paid for by economic growth. It says so on my notes. Are you saying that it might as well say paid for by beavers? Yes. Unicorns? Paid for by economic growth is a meaningless statement when it comes to these sorts of policies, unless they are actively showing their work and their modelling. So you need to basically say that, you know, if we're aiming to cut basic rate of tax down to 16% um, and uh, and when we do and we're doing that over a, a let's let's say 10 years for for the ease of 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 this this kind of discussion rather than seven but you basically have to go within the that 10 year period or whatever it is these are the benchmarks that we're looking at so once the economy hits x amount of growth we will have we, we can afford to cut the base rate by y amount without actively causing any reduction in the overall public expenditure. Now, that is something that can be done from a modelling perspective. That is not something that is actually easy to do in practice because events happen. Like, do you mean events like a massive external price shock and supply chain shock and massive inflation and wars and instability and maybe leaving your biggest trading partner that kind of shock yeah that kind of shock but okay. but, but also would that happen here well you you you, you wouldn't think so but because 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 soon that's what the trust she also says that we can solve the cost of living crisis with tax cuts which pay for themselves with economic growth as well are you saying that's not true well, clearly not, because, and again, like, if they're talking about tax cuts, then the the vast majority of the people who get the biggest benefit from tax cuts will be people on the upper ends of the uh, earnings and income distribution. So I will probably do quite nicely out of it. I will end up probably with a couple of additional £100 in my bank account, which in a cost of living crisis would still be very beneficial to me. But it's not going to do as much... Uh, for me as it would do for other people further down the line and that's the problem because the people who are actually going to be driving the economy with the expenditure and uh, are going to affect the overall demand are the people on the lower end of the spectrum so you're saying it's a problem that the uk is a massively unequal country in which actually you've got a load of people in poverty already where the situations are going to get worse 100 you've also then got the got the issue that if you're talking about uh, if you've got you're talking about corporation tax cuts as well, then you've got to then actually have those profits actively uh, or increased profits actively going through into increased wages, which you know it's not even happening now, and it's only happening in certain areas because of active striking that's happening, and we'll come on to that as a separate point of discussion, I believe, further down. Um, but but yeah, so there's nothing that suggests that the Tories could make that model work. Hopefully it'll get sorted out, though, 
before either Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak is Prime Minister because obviously we're recording on a day that interest rates come up half a percent. It's the highest increase since 2008. The Bank of England is incredibly gloomy about the prospects in the future and that's why both the Chancellor and the Prime Minister are hard at work on holiday. Let's just move on because that's just far too depressing. Okay, number six then. Let's go to something more exciting and less depressing and that's Rishi Sunak's call to bring back grammar schools. She's only the sixth silliest thing to be proposed we've talked about grammar schools on this podcast before there is no evidence that grammar schools actually help social mobility the reason grammar schools do better is because of the demographic performance of the pupils in that school parents were massively against grammar schools because the 11 plus creates winners and losers it also created massive regional inequalities in those winners and losers across class and gender because in some areas you had fewer places for girls than you had for boys and other areas had more grammar school places than others. It was a massive postcard lottery. Parents were massively against it. That's why it was scrapped in the first place and why apart from a few madcap Tory MPs, looking at you Roger Halfen, I had I thought better things yeah. than you of this than that they're the only people who actually want to bring it back. Yeah, it's stupid. This is an idea that just will not freaking die, and it deserves to, because like every policy needs to be uh, uh, measured on its own success metrics. And if the then the the entire idea behind grammar schools is that it's meant to benefit in terms of increasing social mobility, yet every study that has ever been done shows that that is not the case. So therefore, you don't can talk about it and you don't go back to it as a, as a policy idea because it just doesn't work. No amount of anecdotal data of, oh, but I know somebody who went to a grammar school and they came from a working class background and they, they, they did really well actually disproves that. Yeah, like I know people who, who went to a, a grammar school who came from a working class background and they've done quite well for themselves. But the reality is everybody else that didn't go to a grammar school, ended up in the same, ended up in my school, where we failed our Ofsted exams whilst we were bloody well, whilst we were taking our GCSEs. You, you took an Ofsted exam. Blimey. So, sorry, you know. Really no, the school was screwed. <laughs> Number five. This is also Rishi Sunak. This is his proposal to charge £10 for a missed GP appointment. Do you want me to lead off on this yeah. one? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's the sound of money going down the drain as appointments are lost. <laughs> the fact that the NHS has an issue with people missing appointments is not an uncontroversial one. There's a few issues with this one, as Paul Wall pointed out in an interesting article this week. So one of them is that often the people who tend to miss those, those GP appointments, they tend to be the ones at the bottom of the ladder. So it's either those who are... Those who have the most chaotic home lives, which mean that you need to have some sort of more pastoral care for them really anyway and and that kind of support, or they're in such chronic pain they couldn't get to their appointment and therefore finding them as a result of that seems unnecessarily cruel and unusual. The other thing is that um, actually there'll be a massive administrative cost for this, that... GPs are not designed to charge money for people because, and stop me if you've heard this, Steve, that the point of the NHS, the actual point of it being enacted and why everyone likes it is because the NHS is meant to be free at the point of use 
I mean, it's not meant to be set up for charging people. And if you were trying to set up an administrative system where every single GP in the country was able to charge their patients £10, it's an absolute bureaucratic nightmare. Yeah. Also, it would massively change the relationship that you would have with your GP. And it, so there's that as well. Um, so it, it won't work. It's in, it's in, it's, it's one of those, I think, classically populist policies that sounds like a simple solution to what something that is a problem, but actually is impossible to implement and will probably make the situation much worse. But, but the thing that really gets me about this is like, like, in, in a way, like, this is one of the few examples in this Tory leadership uh, election of them actually talking about an actual problem and an idea to solve. It's not a good idea, but it's still an idea. But if the issue is like if if the issue say is people not able to get to the get to the uh, to, to to the GP and things like that, you know what the solution there is? Increase capacity for GPs to be able to do more online online uh, you know you, you know calls diagnoses whatever it might be, so that you can uh, so that if somebody is in chronic pain, like and they need to I, I don't know go in for a for some form of confirmation for the GP so they can get their, their script renewed or whatever it might be, they, that can probably be done online and uh, in, in some form. So work with GPs to actually make that happen so that, you know, there's, there's more flexibility in how they can, they can function and uh, actively deliver for what uh, the needs of patients because that also then has an added bonus in that it will, you'll probably find that the online uh, kind of things will move quicker, which means maybe you can see more patients, which means maybe you can free up more face-to-face slots as well, which means people who do, for whatever reason, either feel the need to go in or physically have to go in for, for whatever it might be, it's a lot easier for them to get that face-to-face appointment. So, you know, k- kudos for Sunak for actually talking about something that's uh, you know an actual issue, but really that should be the bare minimum uh, for what this con- leadership contest should be about. But he's, he's he's gone for a very simple policy rather than actively talking about you know uh, uh, the the overall benefits. And I suspect a big part of it's because so many of the Conservative MPs just have this notion in their head that everything must be face to face. We can't do anything online because like. I won't give him any credit for this stupid policy. You're being far too generous. Um, what I would say... Sorry, <laughs> very <laughs> aggressive. <laughs> what I would say is that this Trust was actually co-author of a report in 2009 that said that everyone should be charged to visit GP. Mental. Speaking of this Trust, I think she's been uh, ignored from this silly list, but don't, don't worry, listeners. The next three, in fact, are all this Trust's First one, ignoring Nicola Sturgeon. So, so this this is an, an an interesting one in that you can't ignore Nicola Sturgeon. Like it's just not possible to actually do that, given she is the head of she's the head of the Scottish government. She's Scotland's first minister, and she has a she with the Greens have a majority, and they have a but in both of their manifestos. A, a commitment to um, trying to hold some form of referendum. Now, you know, you can 
say that referendum shouldn't happen. That's fine. Um, but you need to still engage with them. You can't just sit in in number ten, put put your your hands in your your fingers in your ears and go la 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 la. I can't hear you, Nicola. Are you saying that maybe? The image of a conservative government ignoring Scotland is not necessarily great for the union. No, it's no. not. But I'll be honest. Despite being the conservative and unionist party, they've abandoned unionism as an actual thing. They're they're only concerned with the, the maintenance of their own uh, own power base in England. Everything else is just well, we don't care. If they, if they don't vote Tory, why should we give? Give a crap. And this, uh, again, seems to be another example of Truss and the Hustings essentially telling Conservative Party supporters what they want to hear. Yeah. Which I suppose is going to happen, but it's part of the problem of the way in which this race is happening. Um, interestingly, the other thing that Truss said is that she told the Hustings, we'll have a quiz, she told the Hustings that the Scottish Government is spending its entire resources on independence. Do you want to guess what f- percentage of the Scottish Government's budget is currently earmarked for, for independence issues? 3%. Not 0.05%. There you go. I thought I was going stupidly high with 3 and I was right. Speaking of 3, third silliest proposal is Liz Truss's plan to dump 2,400 EU regulations. So every time somebody in the Conservative Party says, oh, we can dump regulations um, from the EU... I want the media to just ask to turn around and ask why haven't they been dumped already? Like if they if they're saying there's 2400, give us the list. Show us what the list of those regulations is and then like obviously you can't go through all of them but you can find some really good ones and say why are you getting rid of this? Why what is the benefit of getting rid of this? And I can guarantee you that actually when you go down to the to the nitty-gritty detail of a lot of it there, there, there won't be any real benefit to it. I suppose one reason they haven't got rid of them could be because actually businesses quite like regulatory stability and don't want to be chopping and changing all the time. Yeah, and there's also the fact that in order for us to still continue to actively sell in those markets, businesses will still need specifically to meet those requirements anyway, so they're not going to change their regulations. Yeah, because often these rules are sort of a global... I mean, yeah, I mean we're back to our blooming Norway option. Yeah. Uh, talk about about being rule taker, right? I suppose the other reason maybe it wouldn't haven't been changed is because just a simple bandwidth issue is that the civil service have better things to do with their time than just slightly redraft and copy and paste all EU laws and make British versions of those laws when they might have other things to deal with, like an energy crisis and a cost of living crisis and a war. Well, exactly, and that's that's the thing. So saying, oh, we're going to scrap two thousand four hundred things. Either you are actively going to scrap them all, in which case that's instability and that's not good for business in a lot of ways. If assuming these are all you know um, business regulations and for manufacturing or, or, or whatever, or like it's just going to be a complete waste of time and no one's going to have the capacity to actually do it properly because, as you say, like the government's um, bandwidth is going to be taken up with one cost of living, two. Ukraine crisis, Ukraine war, Ukrainian war. Three, still Brexit, still relationship with the EU, the Northern Ireland Protocol, which we still haven't even. I don't even think that's on the list. But the maintenance of that that no. bill going through Parliament is promised by both. I think one of those trusts' three main achievements she's listed as a minister. 
Oh, and the NHS is falling apart as well. Oh, yeah. 12 hour army is white, that sort of stuff. Well, but this trust did say that she used to support Brexit, but then, oh no, she didn't. She used to, uh, she was very, now she supports Brexit. The reason she's changed her mind from having voted in the referendum is because she thought if there was Brexit, there'd be lots of disruption. But there hasn't been a disruption, so she's changed her mind. <laughs> Apart from the fact that trade was hit. Business paperwork has got increased. We've got massive like queues at Dover. It's been harder for musicians to get visas. It's been harder for fewer European visitors coming over here. Staff shortages. But it's fine because none of that affects Liz Truss and the Conservative MPs personally. And that's all that matters, clearly. Speaking of things that don't affect Liz Truss and Conservative MPs personally, number two, the second silliest thing, is Liz Truss's plan to ban the right to strike. It's actually quite offensive that banning the right to strike is only at number two on this list. I, it really is, but number one is such a doozy. Um, but, I mean, I don't even know where to begin to freaking start with this. Like You can't strike on it, Steve. You've got to participate. <laughs> this trust is going to set a minimum service requirement for this podcast. You're going to have to talk about anything, come what may. Well, I think like it's just not even going to function. Okay, so you ban the right to strike. Well, then people just still don't turn up to work. Okay, they get fired, but then there's still a skill shortage. There's still a job shortage. You still can't bring people in to do it. So they're going to be, businesses are going to be screwed. So, like, they're going to be forced to negotiate anyway, even if they're not striking, because people will just walk out from the jobs anyway and will just quit en masse. Well, so the, the first one, just to give you a bit of a spoiler, is on about. You know, British values and democracy is one of those and participation in government and the fact that actually you are allowed to have collective bargaining and you're allowed to negotiate with your employer about what wage you want and you are allowed to withhold your labour as part of that collective bargaining if you take a democratic decision to do so. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that as part of pretty much any definitions of, of, of democracy, you if you dig, dig into it, you will find the rights to strike listed within uh, a number of the things for the UN, the, the EHCR, all of these different things, because it is an integral part of democracy. And, you know, there's a damn good reason for it, because it's one of the few tools that, that the... Uh, that the masses actually have to influence <laughs> the masses. Yeah, those people, not us. There's no unions for political. I know. <laughs> but you know, it's just oh, it's no, but it, it's offensive on so many freaking levels. Well, she's bringing it in because Grant Shapps can't be bothered to negotiate with Mick Lynch. Yeah. And because Grant Chaps has just refused to do his freaking job. It's like so much of the RMT issues probably could have been resolved if you actually had somebody that was willing to actually turn up to meetings. Instead, I think like Chaps has basically promised, no, I will never turn up to a meeting with Mick Lynch. And I think I'm sure like I've heard Sunak kind of say, state something similar as well. People agree with the RMT. All the polling shows that they agree with the RMT because fundamentally, one, they've done a very good job of communicating their 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 their, their demands and their quite reasonable demands. Um, and and people go, well, yeah, it's all about the cost of living, and everyone's being affected by it. So yeah, <laughs> like it's just oh, and that's why the number, the silliest policy on this list, really is a serious attempt to grapple with the cost of living. I know. No, so the silliest policy is, I think it was just today, Rishi Sunak's plan to overhaul prevent and include those who hate the UK in the definition of extremism. If your policy could be utilised by 
someone like Nick Griffin, if they were to ever get into power, to throw your political enemies into the gulag, it is not a good policy. (laughs) And that is exactly what this sort of thing actively does. Because it effectively... Because effectively, I think the definition they were utilizing of of, of vilification is so broad. The the meat of this policy, such as it is, is that the the, the prevent at the moment, its definition of extremism is active vocal or active opposition to the fundamental British values, including democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty and mutual respect and tolerance of different faiths or belief. And what Sunak wants to do is to include vilification of the UK in that definition. Now, obviously, if you're looking at fundamental British values like the rule of law, I mean, one of the things actually uh, regarding the right to strike stuff, Kwasi Kwarteng brought in a a bill about bring, uh, allowing uh, employers to allow agency workers to come in, in and do the work of workers on strike, which he literally proposed with, this used to be illegal and now it's an option for business, which I think is also a line in one of those dystopian Blade Runner films they yeah. have now. Um, if you want to talk about the rule of law and individual liberty, you could talk about the fact that Sinek at Hustings this week was also talking about how we need to change the definition of asylum as defined by the ECHR because it's being undermined by lefty lawyers to attack us. You're being attacked because you're not sticking to the actual definitions yourselves and actually acting on them onto the agreements that you've actually signed up for, you absolute muppets. Does vilification of the UK include, in Britannia Unchained, a group of current cabinet members, including Liz Truss, saying that the British are the worst idlers in the world? I'd love a, the media to kind of like ask Sunak about that and just basically say, if, if it does, would that fit your notion of vilification? And then say, what would you do to Liz Truss? And Quasi Quateng, who edited that book, for putting that opinion out there. But my God, how on earth does Sunak and his team think that this is somehow a winning policy in any form? Like, it doesn't solve an issue. Like, they're not actually, like, thankfully, they wouldn't actually act on it in a meaningful way, I suspect, because it's just a, a random thing to throw in there to make make the, the hard Tory right feel good. But that almost makes it worse, because yeah. it just almost m- moves that Overton window. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't need to go. Absolutely, and just, and, and, and like, more, like, I think I started off with this, but, like, more seriously, if, like, even if you you don't have any indicate uh, any inclination to utilise that bad policy in the specific way, putting it on the books means that it could be used in that way by a future government, which means, you know, you are actively putting British democracy at risk as a result of that. Mm. And why? So you can maybe gain, like, one or two percent percentage points for your campaign that's floundering a serious answer to your question i suppose it's because sunak and his team are not very good at politics no they thought that they well i think they just assumed that they'd be able to beat trust because sunak thought he was better than trust and it was obvious that he was better than trust and therefore um they've been i think a bit surprised at how popular she was which is a bit of a misreading of the the Tory party. Although, to be fair, I think we also predicted that Sunak would beat Trust, so it's also probably something that we also did. We, my my, my prediction was based on the notion that she'd probably have a number of 
uh, kind of like media moments, which were were bad. She hasn't had those apart from I suppose the reason I pay this week, which is which is the thing. But even then, that wasn't a that wasn't her directly. That was the the, the campaign as, as as a whole having a hiccup. I was more thinking, you know, she she has an interview with Andrew Neil, and then mm. you know it all goes tits up. They've not done that largely because she's refused to do them. Like I believe um, Sunak has sat in with um, Andrew Neil. Liz Truss hasn't. Um, so yeah, I think they are aware that the one. I think she has worked to improve on like her weakness. Fair, like. It's the least you could expect of a of a politician that that, that has aspirations for it to be prime minister. And Sunak really hasn't done yeah, that. Ex- exactly, one hundred percent. But uh, but yeah, it's all. And he's become much more desperate as well. So because his set his, his pitch to be the <clears throat> sensible candidate went up the smoke. Yeah, and isn't really able to pivot, so he's just copied Truss's taxes, but tried to... He's, he's copied Truss's taxes, but tried to make a more sensible version of it, which doesn't really work. Yeah. And then has just tried to throw red meat at Tory members. But as you say, I I don't think this is a massive priority for them either. No. I don't think it is either. It's 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 a policy designed for a headline, um, and thankfully, it is a policy which will never see the light of day. If you want to get some access to some other material that otherwise will never see the light of day. You could back us on Patreon, couldn't you, Steve? Uh, you could indeed. You could head over to patreon.com slash champagne, where for a few pounds every month you can get uh, access to uh, episodes a bit uh, early, some unique content that we put out for our backers over there as well. Um, yeah, so head over, take a look, and uh, hopefully see you there. Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. James Cram designed the logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and, J- and Dave Deppert composed our theme tune, Fucky Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. <laughs> <laughs>